All right, back once again for this time, the 15th episode of the Startwell podcast. I'm Kasim Virgi, the CEO and founder of Startwell. And uh, this time around, I'm in the studio on King Street West in Toronto with Scott from Embriate. There was another uh, another <laughs> person in the studio a second ago, but unfortunately, Allison, uh, your partner, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. two partners in the company, uh, had a cold. So she'll be joining us for another session of the podcast. Unfortunately, um, it's just Scott and myself. So that might make it more boring. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about their company, Embriate, and uh, a couple other things to do with uh, Toronto's animation, uh, illustration, kind of creative scene. Uh, we'll see where this conversation takes us. And with that... I welcome you to the studio. Thank you very much. Good to be here. All right. Do you want to just introduce to our listeners, introduce who you are, and, and then we'll jump into the company a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Scott. Uh, I run a company called Embriate. I've uh, been working in the, I guess, the industry, uh, sort of gaming, interactive, animation, music video, that sort of thing for about 15 years. 15 years. So this goes back to like when, you know, the media wild west a little bit, the days of flash, yeah. macro media. I yeah, I, I can remember a time when uh, uh, the first studio that I worked at was a place called Bitcasters. It's not around anymore. Um, but that was at a time when, uh, you know, maybe down Richmond Street, there was a handful of companies doing websites, right. you know, doing fancy flash websites at the time. Oh, yeah. But, the, you know, this whole um, uh, kind of maker scene and the startup scene just didn't exist whatsoever at that point. Yeah, absolutely. For better or for worse. No, I remember. I mean, I remember the early days of kind of the media scene. It was all intermingled, right? Interactive design was this thing people were thinking about for digital interfaces with fresh kind of eyes. And, and it was conversational from, yeah, all elements from web to animation to, it's interesting, uh, to content creation and linear kind of narrative format as well. Mm. And those, yeah, it was a very creative time in Toronto, I think, where also the city felt like it was coming out of whatever it had been always, but this kind of like sleepy Anglo malaise uh, for me anyway, when I moved here in 2005 from New York. So mm-hmm. I felt like I was coming into this kind of like too large to be as provincial as it felt city. And I knew interesting things were going to start. So that mm-hmm. was one of my motivators for coming here. So that's where you were from was New York or that's from the where States? I was recently from like I, I spent a year in New York before coming here. Uh, and then before that, uh, all over the place. So I guess Montreal uh, for university and before that I was uh, in Nairobi, Kenya for like six years and uh, doing my, my O-levels, A-levels like school. And originally before that I was, I'm in Albertan. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if I've ever said it on the mic, but yeah, I was born okay. in Edmonton. All right. You're coming out. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago I went to New York for a few months and came back and was amazed at, at how much of a sort of a cottage town Toronto felt like compared to the size of, uh, you know, and the experience of a city like New York. Uh, but living here, it feels like there's a lot happening and there's mm-hmm. a lot going on, but it is, it is still a city that where I think there's a lot of room to grow. Right. What's funny though, is the, the densification of the urban core in the last decade has been, you know, ridiculous, right. In terms of like condofication of downtown. And if I've never seen any stats, but I'm sure they're available to actually look at new projects in the last 10 years, like development projects and say, okay, well, how many more people compared to 10 years ago are living just in the core itself? Uh, of course, there's good and bad to do with that phenomenon. But I think, yeah, the den- as the population becomes more densified downtown and Torontonians, wherever they're uh, becoming newly crowned Tor- Torontonians from, whether it's the suburbs or other cities or, or elsewhere in the core, uh, I think are creating for the first time where there is this feeling that I have that a kind of a new Toronto is being created. Mm-hmm. Some of that is popularized, you know, with like music, mm-hmm. Drake, Raptors, yeah. et cetera, like yeah. branded kind of mass media stuff. But on the, on the ground, um, in terms of like cafe culture, like, do you remember back when we were talking about this, like beginnings of the media world, uh, there weren't really any independent coffee houses or there mm. were very few. Yep. You know, and Dark Horse was like a this new is even, thing. I can remember before, sort of that was around the time that Starbucks first came in. Yeah. As well, there wasn't really, there wasn't any kind of coffee culture whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and then uh, uh, now it's a completely different uh, kind of world, I guess. Yeah. It is. And so what, uh, I guess, how has the evolution of 
from the way you see it, from those early days where like, kind of like, quote unquote, like digital media meant so many things. And it was really about what you do with the medium. I think we all felt like that at the time, mm-hmm. people playing with media. Uh, and then, you know, all these silos seem to have created themselves in terms of maybe how agencies organize themselves or find people to do work uh, or what is asked by clients. I don't know. How have you seen, um, I guess, the emergence of these channels, service channels, if at all, within industry? And um, I know Embryate is kind of crosses a few of those lines, so maybe it's good to, at this point, just tell us a little bit about what you guys do and why you might be a little bit more interdisciplinary than others. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, thinking back to, you know, just talking about the, the history sort of aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think r- when I graduated school was around the time of the first, uh, the dot-com crash. Okay. And that's when all the, the, the early, um, uh, you know, web startup companies, uh, also crashed along with that. And mm-hmm. so I finished school and there was uh, there was no jobs at that point, at least in that sector that I was interested in. And where where did you go to school? When? Went to OCAD. Okay, and when did you graduate? So that's the Ontario that was, College of Art and Design. That's right, yeah. And uh, uh, and so that was two thousand and three or okay. so. That was around that time. And I think the crash happened like two thousand and one, two, something like that. Was yeah, it? it was really like ninety eight to two thousand two three was that weird boom bust period. That's absolutely. right, yeah. Uh, like. Yeah, it's funny. It was around, t- at least in New York, from my recollection of the just after that. But like, yeah, after kind of the Twin Towers fell, it was around that time that the markets seemed to crash and like, yeah, the bubble burst for startups. But yeah, in Canada, I think it trickled for, on for a couple of years. But yeah, mm-hmm. 2003, four for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember graduating at that point. I didn't have a lot of awareness of what was around at the time. I was in this sort of school bubble. Right. But I remember leaving and there was you know, no more jobs, but I had, had this interest in getting into interactive media. But at the time there, there wasn't a, you know, there wasn't a public consciousness, you know, it, even from the university perspective, they weren't teaching and promoting people getting into website design or right. getting into gaming or, or that sort of thing. There right. just wasn't a a feeling like that was a realistic opportunity in in terms of or even there's just there was just no awareness really of it as a thing mm-hmm. um still very uh, uh very niche but i knew that that was something i was very interested in getting into just a curiosity but i had absolutely no way no no feeling of how i would do that right um so just sort of stumbled into early jobs and with this feeling in the back of my head that i want to do stuff that was within the interactive gaming space, but no idea how that would materialize. And then how did you start working in that stuff? And career-wise, how did that, for yourself, how did that pick up? How did that evolve your, yeah, your perspective on, I guess, the commercialization of digital media and uh, how things are sold and how things, you know, how you could, quote-unquote, work uh, in this space? Yeah, so uh, uh, at the time, there weren't really jobs you know, there weren't mobile app developer jobs or there weren't, you know, getting a job for a gaming company uni- doing Unity development or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe as, as some as a creative um, who was interest, interested in interactive media, maybe you might go to a place like Chump City at the time and, you know, maybe work on their website mm-hmm. uh, or maybe work for an ad company and help build branded websites, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I wasn't very interested in, in either of those. So I started off more in the independent art space. So worked for, my first job was with a, uh, uh, was with a uh, art distribution company, which is very niche. Right. You know? like it's yeah. very like, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think most people would be probably maybe not aware that something like that would exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's art videos, very experimental. Um, kind of stuff and this company was there to sort of distribute uh uh art videos around the world to art galleries and and that type of thing very interesting so even within the art world it's pretty niche right you know yeah um and uh so i had an opportunity uh, early on in my career to do a collaboration between that company and this company bitcasters that had that had sort of fallen with the crash and was kind of in a point where they lost most of their employees Mm -hmm. and they were starting to make that transition into doing their own original ip games okay 
um, taking, I guess, maybe that opportunity in the in the crash to focus on something new. But this is also at a time when people weren't really working on their own uh, uh, IP games, at least in the in the Toronto core, a little bit, but not a, not a, there wasn't much of a market for it at the time. Yeah. Um, and so we did a special project where the artists uh, would explore and experiment with the web. Hmm. Um, and so it was video artists tr- trying out this this new kind of you know interactive flash medium. Yeah. Uh, and so that was my first opportunity to actually kind of bridge the gap between doing art and doing something within the sort of interactive space. Yeah, it's interesting thinking back, like. The web really at that time did feel like a distribution medium that allowed, like, the technological limitations, even though thinking back, like, kind of like in the early days, we're talking about the early days of CSS, you know, when JavaScript was still a dirty word, uh, yet, you know, everyone used Flash for some reason. But it's funny to think back to, like, yeah, whatever you created, just being able to create it and then disseminate it was just so empowering. And today mm. there just seems to be a lot of noise everywhere in terms of people's attention spans being stolen by by different types of experiences that are primarily commercialized. So, Yeah, and I remember at the time that, that the way that people monetized anything, like any kind of creative development, was uh, was ringtones. That was, the, that was the only way you could make money was selling ringtones on flip phones. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Ringtones were big. I had some ringtones on my Nokia N95. I remember. I could turn any tune into a in a ringtone. I could edit a wave file and upload it to my phone. Yeah, yeah, that's all gone with the wind. You know, I don't even know how to select a ringtone on my uh, iPhone. Like, I know how to choose from the list, but I yeah. don't know. Can you even on an iPhone add your own custom ringtone? You must be able to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, y- you you can. Uh, I'm pretty happy usually with the defaults, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, like. Uh, I think there's just for me I'm I'm kind of suffering I sound like an old fogey but I'm suffering from decision fatigue when it comes to non-necessary decisions like you know maybe it's a CEO thing but like I I deal with enough uh, important decisions for my company that when it comes to like configuring a phone for personalized you know ringtones whatever optionality that I have for notifications and stuff I just don't have the bandwidth for that you know I'm like I don't care as long as I can use it to do what I I need to do and I sound like Oh, I sound like a pop. It's true. I sound like an old man, but it's 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 the way it is. Well, I'm the, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I I'm not on social media. Okay. Uh, I don't really use a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if I could just have a flip phone and use it only for Calls. calling and maybe the odd text, that's what I would do. Okay. Um, but I t- I try not to take my phone with me when I go out. Um, so and yeah, and it might be an might be an old man thing. Um, might be a just a fatigue thing. But also, okay, so now I'm going to lay this out there, right? And and it's something that uh, is not necessarily politically correct. But, uh, you know, this whole idea of... Actually, I've been ruminating on this a lot on a different kind of spin. But the idea of, I think in the last decade, last two decades, particularly definitely in North America, there's been this assumption amongst popular culture that new equals better always. And... um and that advancement is has a symbiotic relationship with growth, um, and that these things are, are are what are baked in a society, and they're societal values that people have to ascribe to. And it's funny because I always talk to you know any of our companies or founders and talking in when, when we're doing mentorship sessions and really analyzing motivations for growth and what growth means for companies and why they need to feel this kind of constant need to satisfy larger revenues when maybe profitability might not even be there in the company you know like let's address profitability later uh i think it's relating uh or right now i feel like it relates to this idea of you know kind of information overload and and, uh our questions about how we adopt certain technologies and why and it's interesting talking about that especially you know from a content creator standpoint um because it's one thing to talk about consumer devices and phones, but another thing to then talk about, oh, I spent $3,000 on Final Cut Pro, and then you know six months later, it was redundant. And all those DVDs that came in the box didn't matter, you know? And I had to learn a whole new software, or like how, uh, yeah, I've been for months or years using Ableton Live to record even simple conversations like this, uh, 
not using it for performances anymore because I don't have time to go on, on the road. And I, I just use the tool that I kind of am most familiar with in the moment, but it's not the best tool for the job. Like when I think back, I stopped making music. The last uh, song that I ever like programmed, created and released on a DJ, it was DJ Spooky out of New York's mm. uh, album. Ooh, I forgot even what the album was called, but it was back in like 2003 or four. That was the last time I created a song because that was when I parked my um, PC laptop that had, uh, what was it even called? It was like Acid and SoundForge were, were my tools for sequencing and, and wave file manipulation. Mm-hmm. Sony bought that company. The software became a bit crappy and I moved to Mac. And then I just stopped making music because I was like, I, I can't use those tools I used to. It took me like 10 years to learn Ableton mm-hmm. and now I use it to record podcasts, you know? Right, so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. In the content creation standpoint, I think that it's a big question, you know, like do the how do the tools affect the output of creativity? And at the same time, when you're running a company that is a creative agency, uh, how do tools and, uh, you know, affect the nature of your output, your voice in whatever medium you use and how um, even your staff, how you choose new hires and how they work and whether the company needs to ascribe to a tool set or mm-hmm. a voice. Uh, I guess that this is all open questions yeah, yeah. for you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I know that right now we're using, um, uh, unity for a lot of, uh, a lot of development, a lot of client projects. And, you know, so there's for us as a company, uh, you know, probably 50% of our time is spent on client work and the other 50% of the time is, or at least we try to carve out that time to develop, our own original uh, uh, IP properties, and oftentimes in collaboration with other people or the, you know, the contractors that we end up working with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the original IP is probably the thing that got us started, but the client work is the thing that allows us to sustain, you know, our activity. Of course. Um, and uh, but so for you know when we're working on a client-based project. Um, uh, you know, Unity, Unity is very convenient. There's a lot of developers that are working within it, and uh, there's a lot of tools that make it re- relatively easy to, uh, you know, to to publish that work to various platforms. Okay. So you know, we're not, you know, with Unity is uh, uh, is uh, you know that, but that ease in terms of of unity is also the thing that when you're creating your own original IP means that the market has been to a certain degree flooded with mm-hmm. uh, games that have been developed by um, people on uh, mass uh, because of that relative ease. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when it comes to creating our own uh, uh, IP projects, then we maybe we could publish something um, to the Android store or to the iOS store, but we're, it also has us thinking. Well, if we're if we want to, you know, build an audience around this stuff, where right. it, it's extremely competitive. So, are you know, where are the opportunities? And oftentimes, the opportunities are in technologies, new technologies, or old technologies that aren't being, or techniques, or right. distribution channels right. that aren't being widely um, uh, utilized. Uh, so. So that's a, that's just kind of my I guess response so, back to. But in the okay, so so Embraid as a company, um, let's break down a little bit. We'll come back to gaming in a second. But um, what's the gamut of I guess commercial services that Embraid offers? What do you guys do? Yeah. So the uh, um, uh, we a lot of the projects that we are working on are are coming from uh, projects that we've done in the past. Uh, and then either the, the client that we did a project for wants sort of a similar thing or someone else has seen that. Um, so, uh, you know, so we end up kind of surfing that wave of, of a certain type of uh, So a you project. don't need to worry too much about inbound and outbound and sales and marketing and... Yeah, that, yeah we don't do a lot of uh, uh, self-promotion and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but so basically the, 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 that kind of like uh, client service wave we've been riding is doing a lot of uh, public installations um, okay. so for museums uh, branded content uh, experiential marketing so mm-hmm. things like um, interactive uh, nature scenes at uh, at a museum or uh, a donor interactive donor wall uh, that has like an immersive uh, uh, immersive landscape scene featuring the 
a Florida uh, marsh sort of thing mm. for a donor wall in, in Florida, that kind of thing. Very mm. kind of niche niche kind of uh, product. Yeah. Um, so we've done a lot of that kind of interactive installation type work. And then uh, otherwise, a lot of the work that we do combines in some percentage animation and then some type of game or interactive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, and that could be uh, an animated music video. It could be uh, a game that features heavily animation as part of the uh, as part of the experience. Yep. Um, and on the service-based side, it's it's often some type of branded-based uh, uh, experience. Okay. So it goes a lot deeper than get like gaming. All these different kind of things are just part of the repertoire to create experiences. It seems like, and for the client, and the experience is is the key offering that Embraid offers is like let's create unique ways for people to use this media to interact with yeah, and each I, other yeah and I, and I find that um, you know for us uh, we a client will approach us and they'll say here's the thing that we're trying to the problem that we have the thing that we're trying to solve mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know for example the, the project that uh, that we launched this week was for BMO uh, uh, Women's Day campaign okay and so in that particular case they you know, they said they wanted, they had some statistics on sort of the, the state of women in the professional world. Um, and, uh, and so, and we want to communicate that some way. So obviously an interactive installation in a museum or that type of, or in the lobby of their, of their, of the BMO building probably doesn't make as much sense. This is something they want to get out to the wider world. Right. So the web is, is, you know, a, a good place for us to do that something that can tap into their existing social networks that they yeah. can point back to mm-hmm. so the in that case what we sort of decided on was some kind of interactive quiz something that's that treats the data in a much more fun uh, and kind of innovative way something that's going to take very boring data and yeah. make it seem playful and fun allow people to actually interact with it and mm-hmm. sort of see the consequences of the choices that they're making right. um, uh, that type of thing. So it's that just maybe gives one example of where uh, we feel that one of our uh, the the value uh, our sort of expertise is, is having um, as having a you know having connections with creators from a fairly broad spectrum of mediums and specialties and being able to sort of cater and build an experience very very focused for any sort of particular client's needs. Right. It's interesting because you are a small agency, right? In yeah, terms of six about six yeah. people, right? Um, so, what are the commonalities between the six of you? Would you say, and uh, does that extrapolate into the identity of the agency? Yeah, I, I mean, probably because I think that the we've been around for four to five years, and so it's a fairly short period of time, and so the people that are uh, within the organization have have sort of are there because they're fulfilling a sort of, you know, a particular, I guess, sort of, you know, role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the thing that, that sort of, um, for the people that work out of the office in particular, uh, it would be kind of uh, uh, jack of all trades. Yeah. Sort of, so people that can uh, uh, take on video editing, animation, illustration, coding, graphic design. And, you know, obviously some people are better at one particular thing than others. And, and also people that can work within the web environment can work within, um, uh, unity and flip between those and not lose their minds and and who actually like, (laughs) you say that so calmly. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, yeah, the actual experience of it is never quite as calm, but it's a, if you had anyone lose their mind so far, only myself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was long before you found this guy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's no. I think it's, it sounds like it's extremely important to have that agility on your team uh, and have people be able to work together really deeply, right? Because typically, like, what are the timelines on projects that you work with? Unfortunately, usually in practice, it's about a month. Right. It's uh, like people are like, yeah. "We need something really awesome, the best thing ever," uh, as soon as you can do it. Yeah, that's that's usually the. Uh, uh, but yeah, about I mean the uh, between about a month and about three months seems to be about the so about the common. How do you plan for the year ahead if you're working on that kind of a turnaround? Yeah, the uh, uh, I think the planning is because we have no idea what's what's ahead of us because for the most part projects come up within you know you know 
uh, we hear about it about a week before we actually end up closing on the project. And then there's a month of like intense sort of development, um, maybe a little bit of a break, and then we just sort of repeat. And mm -hmm. so there's very, in terms of planning, we have no idea what the year is going to look like. We just presume there's, it's going to be maybe, a, you know, maybe a little better than the previous year in terms of the consistency of, uh, of work. Um, so the, uh, the planning that we do is usually just centered around um, uh, uh, is is probably more on just a st on just refining our strategy or in 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 terms of like just if when we have a time to take a break yeah. it's to think you know it's just really pra like practical boring things like you know um, do we have a good system for storing our files? Right, yeah. So, like, just it's very... important very, stuff, though. Yeah, very basic kind of, like... Yeah, the things no one wants to do, but also, making sure that in the rush we don't lose sight of things. Well, you also mentioned this twofold nature of your company that's, you know, 50, approx 50% client work, 50% paid-for-by-client-work kind of uh, passion projects or whatever it is. Let's talk about that a little bit to say what else are you guys working on and, and also what's the scope of that work? Yeah, so the, and, and they are kind of uh, complementary to one another. Um, so we're working on a game called Whittle, mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that we're doing in partnership with uh, CAMH and a number of other uh, health organizations. And it's, its focus is bringing together comedians uh, to tell their stories and experiences with depression, and then taking those stories and turning those into animated shorts mm. that will then be tied into some sort of uh, game-based experience. So the final thing is it's a combination of a web series that then points to uh, a mobile game. And that mobile game is made up of real-life stories of comedians experiencing depression. So it could be things like, um, you, know, a, you know, a person, uh, one, of the, one of the stories, uh, this is in sort of pre-production. Sure. So it's, it's a little still rough around the edges. We've got a prototype, but it's, you know, it's like this is still, we're still trying to figure some of these things out. But... You know, for example, one of the comedians said that he just, you know, he just, he, all he had to do was just do his laundry. That was it. You know, so that's a challenge in the game. Yeah. And his... Oh, that's fantastic. But but as a player, you just have to, f you have to just will him to get off the couch. But for somebody who's experiencing depression, that process of just getting themselves off the couch is extremely difficult and yeah. maybe even impossible for that day. Right. right. And so the, the public awareness part of it comes into, you know, turning the challenges within the game are the to facilitate life to do something like chopping vegetables is very easy within the game mm -hmm. but where the where the game becomes ramp the difficulty ramps up is based on those um is based on the the symptoms of depression the negative self-talk the lack of energy that kind of thing and so that's that's just one i guess that's one of the the internal projects we're working on working on a portable escape room um so it's a nested lockbox. Okay, uh, and tell me more. So yeah, so it's a um, uh, it's it's the code name right now is Rory's Cube, only because Rory's the game designer who okay. created it. Um, uh, and uh, so the the first uh, puzzle that we're working on is one based around sort of a crypto consp uh, crypto technology uh -huh. um, uh, theme. And the basic idea is that you're presented with this box and it's got a lock on it, and there's a three digit combination. Excuse me, and um, and all of the clues to unlock that first box are found on the illustrations of that box. So you're presented with this kind of like, you know, challenge through the illustrations, find, figure out what that combination is. You open up the box. Inside of that is another box with a lock on it, and the process repeats. So we've got the prototype we're working on has four boxes, one nested in front of the other. Um, so this is a physical game. This, this is, is a like, physical yeah sort of board game style thing. Huh. And it has a, a web-based component to it, which is where the hints and some of the story is, okay. is provided. Um, but that's, uh, uh, yeah, just another example of the, uh, of the sort of, uh, you know, sort of the side projects that we're doing. And for those, I mean, do you design those with some commercial intent or are they typically just done as, let's do this amazing thing to help humanity and get it out there? Uh, yeah, the, the, there's always, I mean, it may be not, uh, maybe a combination of the two, because we recognize that, I mean, as, you know, for example, with the Whittle, the depression awareness game, uh, uh, we're not, I mean, I, our primary motivating factor is not, um, is not to make a million dollars off this game. Right. Our motivating factor is to make the game. Uh, but we also recognize that, uh, that the, 
people that we would bring in, the partners that we'd bring in the project may be interested in it at, uh, uh, in, uh, you know, recouping some of the costs, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that, that might be where the, uh, the motivating, the financial motivating factor might come in with Rory's cube. Yes. It's, it's something that, uh, you know, we'll, we're, we're excited to be working on the project and it's just fun to, to create this thing and, and to actually figure out the, the game design and, uh, uh, and the implementation sort of challenges, but, mm-hmm. but it, for it to exist beyond this first prototype, we would have to be able to build a, a, a market for it. Um, uh, or it would just remain a prototype forever, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's very interesting. It's, it's, I know it's tough to do that, to commit a certain amount of your time, you know, uh, to, to doing these sorts of projects, but I'm sure everyone on the team kind of feels more fulfilled in their, in the whole 360 of their work because of it. And, uh, it seems like you have a, a really good team from what we've seen in the building, you know, everyone enjoys kind of working together and, and doing what they do. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that maybe from the the top down, so to say, that uh, you know, I really enjoy what I I do, and um, uh, and you know, it's uh, uh, and so I I guess maybe the um, uh, maybe as a, a you know, we try to find people that are you know have sort of the same attitude that are very interested in and have ideas for projects that they want to get off the ground and are motivated by that, and you know, see that you know. S- you know, want to be successful in terms of doing client work and, uh, so that we can do those projects. Right. Um, uh, so I think it's probably one thing that kind of unifies everyone on the team. Oh, absolutely. What does, uh, and what does growth look like for you guys for the next while? Are you hiring anyone for projects or otherwise in general? Yeah, we are, um, uh, we are hiring. Um, uh, so, you know, the way that the two sort of streams, uh, sort of tie into each other is mm-hmm. that we, we spend a lot of our time, uh, instead of doing business development, we spend a lot of our time, uh, trying to partner with people that we want to collaborate with okay. on creative based projects. So, uh, you know, we're working with, you know, f- for example, like uh, 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 people working within film and television, someone with a very successful web series. And so for us, instead of doing business development, uh, what we tend to do is try to find fun, find projects that we can collaborate with on, people who've also maybe found success in what they're doing, mm-hmm. find a way that we can c- contribute to what they're doing right. um, uh, to make their project better, whether it's uh, helping them apply for funding, helping them boost the 3D animation, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's through that pro- process that we often end up crewing up. Um, so we'll end up, before the project is at the the project's launched. Mm-hmm. We'll have a new game project, a new web series that we're working on that we're partnering with somebody else. And then we'll try to find people that are interested in coming on board in sort of the pre-development phase. Uh, and then if that project on its own is successful, then we all, you know, work on that project. And we, you know, the illustrators that came on, the graphic designers that came on, uh, we'll, we'll all work on that. But also at the same time, uh, as new client-based projects come in, come in we'll usually pull from that pool of people working with us and collaborating with us on sort of, you know, original IP to then fulfill the client base work. So, Mm. you know, we're always, we're always recruiting, but we don't, you know, we, we find we have the most success through network, through network. And, and, you know, by, I always like for me as a company owner, I, uh, I respond and resonate to people that have a strong drive to create their own original things. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, because it's something I can relate to and I can wrap my head around, um, versus having some, having a conversation around, you know, I saw this graphic posting for a graphic designer right off the bat. That conversation is one where they may even have their own projects that they're working on, but they don't want to talk about it because they feel like it would, it would seem like weird to talk about your own projects in an, in an interview. Um, but then it's, yeah, it's countercultural to the culture of your organization. Yeah, that's right. Yeah that whole experience of this being work versus passion, you know, you kind of like want that, the melt at work. People come, they can work on what they love together and, uh, and everyone's happier. Right. Um, so any, I know it's been, we haven't really even dug into like the, the experiences that you've had along the journey that like founding this company, you know, in the last decade plus, but, um, looking back on, you know, it's an interesting perspective you might have being someone who's been involved with digital media 
uh, for so long. Uh, what would you, do you have any recommendations for people just starting out in digital media who may have had some of the questions you had over mm -hmm. a decade ago, uh, now faced with so many different kind of, you know, avenues that they could approach for creating things uh, and trying to do it as a job? Yeah, um, uh, I guess I can talk about my own sort of personal experience, but I but I imagine that the, I, I you know I think the climate is very different right now. Right. Um, where, uh, uh, but uh, but it, you know, and this goes back to the, you know, sort of our philosophy around you know, you know, working on our own creative projects, yeah. and then and how that sort of ties into the, you know, doing a, a service based work. Um, uh, I think that that methodology that we have now really took shape early on in my career where, um, you know, when earlier on in my career where I, you know, I had uh, no savings and so I needed to work, uh, you know, as often as I, as often as I could. Right, right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that uh, throughout my career, uh, the one thing that I, I think that I've, done probably consistently is just not got too wrapped up in what it is that I'm doing mm -hmm. and and trying to avoid getting too wrapped up in the kind of ego of what I'm doing yeah you know so within my career I've you know I've you know early on I had some great opportunities where I was like running a you know a, a, a digital agency pretty much right out of school mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know that was great but then you know, that company went away, uh, and, uh, then was, you know, working in a, in a restaurant, you know, working as a line cook, working, uh, I've done moving, oh, yeah. uh, garbage collection, you know, and then, you know, because, because I was also very interested, uh, in creating my own original projects, uh, I read, you know, I, I, I think one of the challenges is that it, it means that if I'm going to prioritize that, uh, uh, it means that there's going to be long bouts where maybe I don't have as much uh, um, uh, money coming in from like a stable paycheck. Sure. Um, but you know, I've I think I've tried to find. Uh, 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 yeah. So that's been probably one thing that's been kind of consistently uh, played on my career, and I think that that would only apply to people that are really interested in you know, creating their own original IP and sort of mm -hmm. ac accepting the, the sort of those. Yeah, being able to create is the kind of goal, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, like any kind of commercial creative context is one which is fraught with potential despair, right? Where like if you if you were just kind of working, let's say whatever, you work for Mega Agency X, and you're pumping out awesome content and 90% of that awesome content gets put on the shelf because the client only wants to buy it or the 10% that's a rehash of what mm -hmm. you've been doing or the agency's been doing for 10 years. Um, that lack of fulfillment in, in your work is something you take home with you every day. And who wants that fundamentally mm -hmm. if you are a creator, you know, mm -hmm. and you want your creations to be something that live and breathe and people interact with and you can communicate through. Um, it's something that requires, I think it sounds like it, it definitely requires uh, a commitment to uh, maintain that ownership and that experience in your career. Otherwise, you know, being a creator is less fulfilling. Is that true? Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I would. I, I would say so. And, um, you know, I think that the, uh, you know, for myself, I've uh, I have myself and also watched people that I've worked with get kind of caught up in what they were doing in mm -hmm. the past and not able to see changes in the market, you know, that might lead to maybe the company not bringing in as much revenue and not sure. being able to, you know, maybe just say, you know what, let's, let's fold the, let's fold the company. Let's go work for somebody else for a few years, you know, had a successful company. Now I don't, now I'm working for someone else. And I, you know, Oftentimes, company owners uh, aren't very useful when working for someone else because they don't have a lot of those like very hard skills that sure. another person is looking for. Um, so that can be a very, uh, you know, challenging uh, uh, experience. But it's the reality of, of I think, most people um, uh, working as, uh, as entrepreneurs. But, you know, I think the, uh, the, that's just something I just sort of keep in the back of my mind is just always, always 
trying to remain uh, just keeping perspective and and uh, on where things are where things are at, at mm-hmm. and always being open to basically doing anything to sort of keep going on what my sort of core uh, uh, interests are. Excellent. Well, I think um, I'd like to do this as kind of like we'll do a follow up session at some point bringing the whole team together if you're into it absolutely yeah. uh, and get everyone roundtabling on this because I, I think there's a lot to be um you know analyzed and learnt from to do with the experience of being a creative company and particularly you know here in at this campus where we've got this good mix of different focuses amongst our teams but uh you know predominance of tech for the point of driving new innovations in tech not necessarily for focusing on the client experience of what um, that tech allows people to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be interesting to, maybe we, what we could do is pair some of you guys with a few people that are like software engineers looking at kind of creative process and, I yeah. Don't know. Well, and, and that's the, the, yeah, the reality of it is even within this one building, there's, I mean, I mean, how many companies work, work out of here? We, yeah, I was just looking at this. We have, I think I would say over a hundred, 120 and where some of those are just solopreneurs, some of them are remote workers that work large agencies, just one, two people. Yeah. And and the thing that's in talking with, you know, because you guys have these social things and uh, talking with people, I haven't found another company that does something really that much like what we do. Yeah. And there's another hundred. And, and but uh, but it's and not there's four game developers that I can think of that I know. Yeah. And even but yeah. I don't even know if you guys have talked to those guys. I've, I've, uh, or at least I've seen like kind of what, you know, you pass by their office right. and you see what they're working on. You pass by their desk. And, um, but it's not to say that we're unique, but I think it's the reality is, is that there's, you know, there's so many different ways that people are, are living and, and even thriving within, by doing, you know, some type of work within technology, art, you know, that kind of thing. It's pretty amazing. It is amazing, especially as old schoolers looking back on the last decade and a half, everything's changed in Toronto in terms of this new economy being able to be. Uh, to provide people career opportunities yeah, and, and, and a multitude of them. Like, yeah. You know, well, going back to the, just what we were talking about at the beginning is, you know, finishing school and there being, uh, you know, there really just wasn't, you know, there weren't many, you know, there's probably a handful of companies that were doing games that were doing some type of what we would, what we would like looking around the office, yeah. you know, the, the, um, the building here, like, you know, there's probably, there's probably ten times what was it just in this one building what might have been in all of all of Toronto in terms of people actually making a living. Not, very not people doing yeah. it. Yeah. Not people doing it because there was lots of people hacking being, at, things, hacking at yeah. things and you know and and you know had passion for doing cool stuff with the web and art. Yeah. Um, but people making an actual proper living off of it and thriving that was uh, probably very few and far between at that time. And that's what fifteen years or so. Not long. And hopefully, I mean. Uh, do you have a sense that is, do you think that trajectory is going to ever con- increase? Well, I think this is the, 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 the expectation of, uh, even in the, you know, political status quo in this country is that we're moving into a knowledge economy that should be the predominant employer. Uh, and despite being a resource, uh, intensive or resource, uh, a net resource kind of producer, a country one that or exporter particularly, uh, our manufacturing sector has disappeared in the last 20 years. And uh, any kind of relationships that I've seen that we have with, let's say, the states right now, that's been the primary uh, maybe supplier, top-level supplier of jobs through the automotive industry and things, uh, even those are disappearing. So I think I think the expectation definitely in Canada is that more people every year will be engaged commercially in creative and knowledge-based industries. But... Um, What's very interesting for us at Startwell is to analyze how that happens in relationship to entrepreneurialism and new ventures. And I think it's less about large agencies, you know, uh, WPP or whatever the, the names of the big brands are anymore, if they're still around, is I think it's more about kind of like, how do people become specialized in something and be able to successfully and sustainably um, commercialize that that's expertise? Uh, and just even looking back on my own kind of decade and a half that I spent, uh, you know, prior to startup stuff, but uh, running my agency, which was called Design Guru, we were specialized 
going back to 2005 when I founded it and moved here to Toronto, we're highly specialized in um, consulting on and creating places online for communities to develop and people to have multilateral conversations. Um, so that's kind of like pre-Facebook era, looking at tools for positive emotive interaction online. Um, you know, and, and again, similar to you guys, like for a long time, that that agency became very um, kind of mini famous around the world and we relied on inbound entirely. Um, and the brand that Toronto had that people saw who hired us from all over the world uh, in all those early years of this stuff um, was very positive. I think it's still there. And I think Toronto and Canada have uh, a good vibe globally for being um, a highly educated population that's very adept at knowing what is new and what is coming. Um, so I think that there's a huge potential for that kind of political expectation of our economy to be satisfied. But again, Startwell's perspective is that um, that hopefully will mean more people are encouraged to create opportunities for themselves and the people around them. Uh, and I would like to see in the next 10 years, you know, uh, the amount of new ventures being founded and successfully growing uh, exponentially increase. I think we are already mm -hmm. seeing that. And uh, the reliance on the you know, conventional success story, which again goes back to this growth topic uh, or the need for growth. I'd like to see more founders being less interested in mergers, acquisitions, and IPOs. Uh, and I'd like that to fade away because mm -hmm. fundamentally these ideas of uh, job satisfaction and creating something for the team that shares it um, fade away when their ambitions are purely profit driven. I've and, worked for a, a right. number of companies that received uh, in investment and I, I don't think one of them uh, received an investment and grew into a better, more thriving company afterwards. Right. And I think there's at least five that, uh, wow. that, that I've worked with. Um, yeah. It, so I, I tend to, I tend to agree. I think that it, you know, I think that uh, that's just my own experience, but there there's so many complications that I've observed that come when the when the um, when the, the this new sort of capital comes in that isn't it's a different kind of capital that was coming in before because the other capital was probably coming in because of you know revenue trickling in or, or that mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm. thing and then all of a sudden it just it, sh it just completely changes the and everyone's perception of the company. What's really interesting that we've been coaching a few companies that are members here on is when you take a mindset that melds the two perspectives but relies on sustainability saying okay you've created something amazing you've done that without outside capital and the expectations of capital uh, you know you don't want to guesstimate on in terms of your growth trajectory to be able to focus on what feels natural for your growth you've got something good going growth is not a bad thing but Imagine if that money came with no strings and take a step further and say, well, how much money do you need to accomplish what and what's your growth trajectory aligned with that that doesn't need to be market driven out of a competitive mindset? Because that's the other thing that I feel venture capital can screw people up on is this competitive mindset right from the day that someone starts pitching a concept to a VC. Um, it's pitched within the context of we can do this better than anyone else. We have a market opportunity window. They don't know our IP. And I think we're in a post-competitive world. I believe so. Hmm. Where there's greater opportunity than ever before for any entrepreneurial or early stage venture to say, we have a direct relationship with our customers. We know them and we can expand that relationship to be able to yield more profit for us. And that reality is a very different thing than saying, um, the time's right, let's go for this. Because as we see in the public markets too, right? At a certain level of growth, there's just no sustainability. And uh, mm -hmm. we've seen it and I, I love it. it. We're gonna have many more podcasts on this topic. I think now that uh, Bitcoin has kind of shit all over itself, you can actually talk about the failure of, maybe the early failure, let's call it, of cryptocurrencies. I think I believe in decentralization and crypto and stuff, but, um, but I think this, you know, great, hyped uh perception of grow until you go public and then just it lives on its own is a fallacy because capital is not the only input in any organization mm -hmm. 
anyway, so scaling it back to uh, to this stuff, I think there's lots of stuff to talk about in terms of creative fulfillment in any type of organization. And yeah, my my expectation is that um, I think you can do a lot in Canada. And again, just one lesson from what I learned uh, in my creative agency days is um, I think that Canadians have a good, you're already starting off on a good foot globally to go out and look for clients and customers abroad. Um, and I think that's something we're well adept at in Canada being so isolated geographically, mm-hmm. uh, yet having such great diversity in our culture and in our communities. So yeah, I think that anyone listening to this who is Canadian, who's thinking about uh, whether they should pursue an entrepreneurial venture, I think the time's right. Uh, if you if it's based in creative technology, um, the potential for realizing what you want to is greater than ever. And uh, the international market is always warm to Canada, and especially as, as America's brand is, is falling apart, <laughs> it kind of helps. Sounds good. Yeah, man. So we'll follow yeah, this up with, with your whole team. We'll do some more sessions like this. And Stay tuned. Absolutely. Um, for anyone who wants to learn more about your work and Embriate as a company, where should they go and where do they click? What do they see? Yeah, you, uh, you could go to our website. It's uh, embriate.com. Uh, so it's dot uh, uh, com. So it's and like create with M at the beginning. Because it's embryonic, it's about new stage, or what's... I didn't even ask you about the brand. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, we, we actually created... When we first started the company, what we were most interested in was uh, uh, was in kind of getting new ideas off the ground. Um, uh, and that's always been my favorite spot. I'm sort of a... I like the beginning stages of projects more yeah. than the end stage. Yeah. So we were... Uh, uh, and I think we are sort of shifting into that, uh, into that more core focus, doing less service-based work, more working with other original creators to work with them, partner with them to get new ideas off the ground. So uh, we're actually doing a rebrand. So our focus is shifting away from the service-based work and we're spinning off another company um, that's going to be more of a, just a dedicated service-based company. So cool. it'll be the cor- very corporate looking front front end and Embraid is going to be shifting more to the maker boost kind of uh, embryonic kind of side of uh, our activity. Nice. Very exciting. Very, very exciting. Okay, well, it was a pleasure having you in the studio today. Same here. Yeah, great great chatting. More chats coming soon. Yeah, sounds good.